welcome to season four, episode three of the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. I know that's a mouthful. I'm your host, author Emily White, and what we do with this podcast is take you through the entire modern music industry from recording to release or creation to execution, ensuring that you're not missing any revenue streams along the way. So we're on a live UK tour. This is our first uh, international season, which has just been amazing. Um, We're here today at Nottingham's Metronome, which is absolutely gorgeous. And who are you all? Are you mostly, who here is a musician? Great, lots of musicians. Who here is an industry person? You could be a musician also. Okay, so pretty much, any other categories? Interested in music, supporting music? Okay, great. So uh, first I wanna thank The Word from the Ivers Academy for making this tour happen. Um, Just some info on them. Supercharge your knowledge and career in the music business and in the live environment with 14-day Kickstarter courses, 12-week boot camps, and a fully validated diploma. All online, maximum flexibility, maximum impact. Get more info at the word, that's W uh, R D, no O, dot UK. Okay, so like I said, um, we're taking you through the entire modern music industry. We started in Bradford, uh, that's my Midwestern accent, sorry, Midwestern American, Bradford, I don't think that's how you guys pronounce it, but um, where I interviewed artist Sinead uh, Campbell on getting your art together, okay? So that's the first step, right? Like there's no point in moving on to future episodes, future chapters until You're making art that's true to your heart, your soul, and your spirit, right? That's what's going to connect with your audience for the long term. And then last night, we were in Cambridge, where we talked about pre-recording marketing foundation. Um, And that's really like the sustainable element of building a long-term career, because it's really important that you launch pre-orders and start monetizing your music before it's even out. And pre-orders are different from pre-saves, right? Sometimes there's some confusion around that. Um, if you pay attention to even, you know, Taylor Swift's re-releases, um, she's launching pre-orders. I'm sure my audience is sick of hearing this, but um, I was recording an episode in January talking about this, and I really love Noel Gallagher. And I got an email from Noel's email list announcing his album in June, Um, So it was announced in January, and and you could pre-order it, but it wasn't going to come out until June. So in January, you could buy it for 10 pounds, you know, 50 pounds, all the way up to 150 pounds, including tickets, merch, all this good stuff. And I just remember thinking, the amount of money they are going to make between January and June is massive. And everyone here knows that Noel doesn't really need the money, um, but the biggest artists and teams are doing this for a reason, right? And so too many artists wait until day one of their release and share their Spotify link and are just like, give me fractions of a penny, right? Um, So I'm not saying don't be on streaming, but the sustainable element is to set up a text list, okay? Set up an email list. Um, I really like the platform community.com for text lists because it was built for music. Um, And I really like MailChimp for email lists um, because it's free to get started for musicians. So um, if you want to go back and and listen, um, because obviously last night's episode 
isn't out yet for our live audience, but um, like I said, this is our fourth season. So we've covered that topic a few times. Um, I encourage you to dig in on that because I know it's not why you got into music, but tech companies are the most valuable companies in the world. Why? Because they have all your data. So this is why you didn't get into music. Um, you need to uh, view yourself kind of as a tech company. So every fan you come into contact with, um, see if they're open to sharing their mobile number with you, their, their email, because um, that's where you can really crush it on those pre-orders and those bundles and monetize your music before it's even out. Okay, so that's a little recap on pre-recording marketing foundation. So today we are going to talk about um, business affairs. And so what that means in the US, and I'm, I'm pretty sure um, it's similar here, business affairs is the phrase that means basically legal and accounting when it comes to music and entertainment. So um, probably not the most exciting topic today, another element you know, that you didn't get into music for, um, but a very, very crucial and important one. Um, so just a very brief excerpt um, from the book this podcast is based on, um, you know, about the business of recording and songwriting. So before you commence recording, it is crucial that you sort out how everyone will be compensated. Far too many artists wait until they are in the middle of or done with recording, which often leads to a convoluted mess. I know that money isn't many people's favorite topic to discuss, but I guarantee that you are making your life easier by getting this squared away before you begin recording. It can be a nightmare and also hold up your release if you do so later. Okay, so before I bring Sam out, um, I'm just going to do a as brief as I can overview on what you need to sort out before you hit the studio. Um, so first, there's two main rights in music. Who knows what the two main rights in music are? Anyone want to try? Yeah? No? Um, kind of close. That's a little on the songwriting side. Um, anyone else? So there's the recording side, and there's the songwriting side, or the publishing side. So... We'll get into this more in uh, episode five on how to land a sync placement. But for example, if you land a thousand pound sync placement, 500 pounds is going to go to who owns the recording and 500 pounds is going to go to the songwriters. Um, it's a very old school thing. You know, I think it has its origins in the 1950s where there would be like Tin Pan Alley and the composers, right? And then there would be the performers. And this is understandably like very confusing, I'm sure to many of you who are like, well, I write my music and I record my music and I'm one person. But that just is how it is. You know, that's, that's the law of the land. So just know that there's a recording side and there's a songwriting side. So if any of you have worked with um, producers, um, producers generally get paid a cash rate um, and then they receive a few uh, points or points is slang for a percentage on the recording side. So if it's a local producer who's just getting started, um, maybe a student, um, they're going to receive 1% uh, on the recording side, which is different from the publishing or songwriting side. And again, the word publishing and songwriting can be very uh, interchangeable, so don't get you know, intimidated by that. Um, if it's, you know, a local producer with a few titles under their belt, 
Um, they're going to receive 2% on the recording. If it's someone a bit more established, they're going to receive 3% on the recording. If it's a bigger name producer, 4%. And then all the big famous ones, you know, um, Rick Rubin, St. Vincent, Dr. Dre, that's going to be at least 5% on the recording. Um, but what I love about the modern music industry is you all own your recording rights, generally. Um, I say generally because if you're signed to a label, um, you might not. But most of us, you know, most artists now, because there's so many people recording since we now have access to recording, um, own their recording rights, um, which also means you can get creative, right? So if there's a producer you really want to work with and they really want to work with you and you're just getting started and you can't afford their cash rate, you could say, hey, could I offer you more points on the recording side. You could double that or, or triple that. Um, I still think it's really important that you own the recording. Um, and you could also do the same thing with any uh, players, any studio musicians you're hiring. Um, studio musicians and players also generally receive a flat rate. Um, but if you can't afford that, you could say, hey, I could offer you, you know, one or two or three or five points on the recording. Um, I think it's important that you hang on to at least 50 or 51% of those points. It's your label. It's, it's your recording. Um, again, it's just going to be easier if you pay them the cash. But throughout this book, I try to give examples and this podcast of what to do if you have a budget or if you don't have a budget, right? Um, and regardless, no matter how you decide to compensate your players and producers, um, it's really important that they sign a work-for-hire agreement. So a work-for-hire agreement says that you own the recording. Um, this is something, you know, you could get, I, I really like the platform um, Cosigned, C-O-S-Y-N-D. Um, they do standard music agreements um, that anyone can access. Uh, but also, you didn't hear it from me, you can probably find a free work-for-hire agreement online. This is totally standard for people to sign a work-for-hire. It's nothing scary. It's nothing to run to the hills over. And, you know, when you're paying a player, for example, let them know, I'm going to pay 50% of your fee now, and here's the work-for-hire agreement, and then 50% when I get the signed work-for-hire back. And it just is a little more motivation to get that paperwork done. And really, anyone that sets foot in the studio, your mom, whatever, like needs to sign a work for hire. Because there are horror stories of people coming out of the woodwork, you know, far after a release, and especially when it's successful, saying, well, I wrote that lyric, I wrote that hook, I wrote that beat, right? So um, you need to make sure that everyone signs a work for hire. I think if there's two things you take away from this lecture, it's work for hire, and then what I'm about to talk about next, which is songwriting splits. So I've been really privileged to work with big songwriters like Brendan Benson and some of the guys in Wilco, and even though those guys are in bigger bands and could command a higher songwriting share, they just ask for what they wrote. So they're like, if I wrote 10%, I get 10%. Or if I wrote 70%, I get 70%. There's a few ways to handle songwriting splits. That's the one that I like the most. Uh, but it depends, right? So if you're going into a co-write situation, 
you could also agree in advance, like, hey, we're going to do this Lennon and McCartney style, like 50-50, no matter what happens when we come out of the room. And of course, there's pop stars that also get songwriting cuts on tracks that um, they didn't write on. And that's okay too, I think, right? Because if you know it's going to be uh, a massive hit or, or certainly get some airplay, um, I understand why a, a big pop star would be uh, justified in that. But the most important thing is that you have this conversation in advance of recording. And so if you wrote the songs, in my opinion, get together with everyone before you commence recording, get coffee, whatever, you know, with players, producers, engineers, and say, I wrote these songs. If you feel that you contribute to the songwriting process at any point in the studio, let me know immediately after the session so we can sort it out, right? Um, because and maybe some of you have been in this situation where six months later, someone come ba comes back and says, oh, I, I wrote on that, and it's already released, it, it's already out. So I know people don't like talking about this stuff, but it is just so much better to get it all, you know, get, get a converse, have a conversation before you hit the studio so everyone is on the same page about how you're hand, hand, handling songwriting splits. And so no matter how you do it, whether, like I said, you're going into a 50-50 a co-write situation or um, someone, you know, contributes to the songwriting and the recording process and you decide, okay, they get 10%, I get 90%, um, let them know that you're going to send them an email after you've agreed on the splits verbally, um, saying, okay, like we discussed, I wrote 90%, you wrote 10%, and then make sure they respond to that email. And then you have a written record of it. I do know that CoSigned, which I mentioned before, has like digital, you know, song uh, split sheets um, that you can use as well. But um, yeah, just throw it in an email. Agreeing to terms over email is as um, enforceable as any sort of contract. And you don't need a contract for songwriting splits. The old school way was literally a split sheet. You would just, you know, say, I wrote 70%, this person wrote 30%, and both sign it. But, um, and you could still do it that way. I just would highly recommend that you digitize it because what if something gets spilled on it or God forbid there's a fire or anything could happen. And I, and I do encourage email because um, sometimes text can go away or we lose things in iCloud or old phones or whatever. Um, so just make sure you have a written record of that. And when I was talking about producers before, I'm seeing more and more producers ask for songwriting and, and publishing credit on songs they didn't write on. I don't really love this in the rock and indie world, especially if you're paying the full cash rate and the percentage on, on the recording. Because remember I mentioned syncs before, like they're still going to get um, you know, their percentage on, on sync placements and, and all that good stuff. Um, there are more producers pushing for uh, songwriting cuts on music they didn't write on. This is a little bit more common in hip-hop. So it is standard there. So just know your genre. But either way, that's why you have to have these conversations up front. And when you're sorting out producer payments, if it's just between you and the producer, same thing have a conversation, throw it, in, throw it in an email, and you're good to go. If you do get sent a big uh, fancy producer agreement, that's when you do need to hire um, a music attorney, not any 
kind of attorney, I would say not even an entertainment attorney. Our business can be so weird and wacky. Um, it's really important that you have a music attorney. I've seen a lot of people try to cut corners and say, oh, my family friend's a real estate attorney or whatever. And it's, it's just going to make you look unprofessional and um, waste more, waste a lot of time for everyone. So um, we'll have some time for Q&A at the end because I, I know that was a lot. But just a couple other things on business affairs. If you want to get your music remixed or arranged by someone, um, those are also uh, generally cash payments. But same thing, if you own the recording and you don't have that cash, you could work it out and say, cool, like I'll give you 5% on the recording or 5% for arranging. I mean, if it's some massive remixer and it's a huge name and you're just getting going and they want like, you know, 50% of the royalties on the recording, I say do it, you know, like if it's a big artist and it's a cool collaboration, uh, go for it. And finally, while you are having these conversations, if you are in a band or group, this is a good time to sort out how your band and band or group is being compensated. So um, have that songwriting conversation so everyone's on the same page. You know, I know plenty of bands, I, I think most bands, if I had to generalize, do real songwriting splits, like, you know, like I explained. But I also saw an interview with Chris Martin recently saying, like, we just you know, split it all equally, split the songwriting equally, because then the best idea wins in the studio. And I don't remember if he got this specific, but to me, what he was implying is people aren't kind of like pushing for their bit or their part or their publishing or whatever. It's just the best idea wins. So have that conversation. And then when it comes to all other income and expenses with a band or group, um, I'm sure most of you know this, but generally, you know, if a band member... Um, is paying for gas or paying for merch expenses and hotels and stuff like that, they get paid back and then you split all of the revenue equally after that. So, okay. So that's enough on uh, business affairs. I hope that was helpful and not too overwhelming. Um, so now we're going to explore your music scene here and uh, get to know Rough Trade Sam Heaton. So let's bring out Sam. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Oh, I like the yeah, rough good. trade hat. Very good. Yeah, on brand always. Yeah, got, a, <laughs> got a promo. <laughs> awesome. So how are you? Good. Yeah, yeah. Excited to be here, actually. So it's, it's nice. It's a nice little uh, microphone in my face. <laughs> Very cool. So where are you from? <laughs> I'm born and bred in Nottingham, in the UK. So yeah, I've been here all my life, really. Very cool. And you've done so much here. I called you the king of Nottingham when I met you before, but you wanted to be known as the prince of I, Nottingham. I don't know how I feel about the king. That's, uh, <laughs> that's quite uncomfortable. But, well, you know. I hear you. But wait till they hear, you know, everything uh, that you've done uh, in the music scene here. But first, you're a musician. So yeah. tell us about your music. Um, well, I've been playing in bands since I learned guitar at 14, 15. And um, I've independently been booking my own tours around the world i've done 23 countries around the uk europe and asia uh, with my band air Lou. and yeah we've done all sorts of things like the john peel stage at glastonbury and um recorded and released our own albums and done tour collaborations and tour exchanges with korean bands and bands from the baltic states and all sorts of things like that so brilliant what what's busy. what are some of your favorite countries that you've toured in uh, Korea and Taiwan is some that yeah. we've been returning to. Um, 
we've been returning a lot to the Baltic states as well and Poland, and they've been really good for us as well. Um, the UK is our, our home, but to be honest, where we make most of our um, revenue and income and stuff like that is from not the UK, interestingly. So, yeah. How did those touring opportunities come together, like in Taiwan and Korea? That's incredible. Um, a mix, really. Um, so I've been booking tours independently for a long time. Yeah. Um, so I've got the live experience of how to book shows and how to put shows together to form a tour. Um, so we've got that DIY ethos behind us anyway. And then when we were playing a festival in Wales, um, it was one of those classic shows where there was about 14 people there. Yeah. And... Uh, it was really lovely, actually, because it shows there's still some romanticism left in the music industry. And uh, someone came up to me afterwards and said, do you want to play this festival called Breakout West in Canada? And we were like, yeah. And then someone other came up to us and said, do you want to play this festival called Zandari Festa in uh, South Korea? And we were like, yeah. And then we found out they both clashed on the same yeah. week. And that was a really sad situation. But we had to decide whether we wanted to go to Canada or um, Korea. And we thought, who really gets to go to Asia and Korea and do shows like that. So that's what we decided to do. Applied for PRS funding, which is like a, a funding body here in the UK. Got awarded £1,500, which mm -hmm. covered some of the flight money um, over there. And when we landed in Korea, um, we got speaking to, we you know, we were giving out, you know, CDs and business cards and really on the ground promoing ourselves. And people were like, oh, have you only got two shows on here in South Korea? And we were like... Yeah, they said, oh, do you want to play our bar tomorrow? And we were like, yeah, sure. So we did that gig. And then people in the audience came up to us after the show and was like, do you want to play our place tomorrow? And we were like, yeah, sure. And it just turned into a seven-day tour before we had to go back to Seoul and play the festival. Um, so after that, the festival booker was like, obviously, you've done made a great impression. And how about you come back and we book a bigger thing and do an Asia tour? So between me and that person, we booked five countries um, over 45 days spanning from Singapore to South Korea and Japan, Taiwan, China and stuff like that. So, And then we just did that every year and just kind of snowballed, really. I love that. And it's so great you were able to play some shows before the festival in Korea, too. Those yeah. were probably some nice warm-up dates, too. Yeah. I, w the way we've always done it is you get a festival abroad uh, or just a festival in general. Who And the festivals typically pay, like, a handsome fee um, and that's the bulk of the money that allows you to get to the country and then we would book shows around that festival as compactly as we can in a week or two um, to make it cost effective to be in the region and we've done that since day one and it's really worked so um, not to, I used to be a tour manager, so it's like this is where my brain is going not to go down the rabbit hole too much. But um, do you want to share like how you handle visas and things like that when you when you travel? Yeah, so uh, like a big one for us was uh, the visa for China, and yeah. um, that was really tough. Um, but it's, it's a classic case of applying for a visa in embassy. Um, so mm -hmm. the Chinese embassy is based in Manchester in the UK, so we had to go there, get in line, form a queue. And, uh, we, you know, if you're in a bigger band, I'm sure there's a... You know, someone who can do this sort of Me, stuff for you. Me, the tour manager used to yeah, do that. It's yeah. a really long, laborious slog, but we did it as the three of us and spent the day at the museum and made a day of it, really. But you know, you can um, do it DIY for sure, but it's a lot of uh, jumping through holes and stuff like that to get yeah. there. <laughs> and just ask the promoter, right? The promoter is going to be yeah. your your conduit and your best friend when it comes to these questions. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. You know, like the, you're only I, I've got this philosophy that you're only stupid once, and mm. if you ask the question, then the people are going to give you the knowledge and you'll be able to go from there um so when we got booked with the china stuff they said have you got your visas done and 
you know, naively I said, oh, would we have to have visas? And Eric, the promoter in China, was like, yeah, you have to have visas to come yeah. to China. So, of course, we then went researching that. And, you know, it's pretty easy to find. It's all online. It's not like yeah. a, they don't try to hide it from you because they want you to have the visas at the end of the day because they charge you for it, you know, so it's... Um, it's a, it's a needed thing from both sides. Yeah, very wise. And also ask your promoter what the deal with merch is, right? Because sometimes yeah. it can be difficult with customs to get merch in. As you get bigger, um, you know, you're going to want to work with merch companies in these territories to save on shipping. So again, ask the promoter. Because even in the United States, like the har- I don't know. So have you gone to Canada? No, no. Okay. So even in the in the United States, and I think the White Stripes made a documentary and talked about this, like the White Stripes are from Detroit, which is just across the border from Canada. And they're like, we've been all over the world and the hardest border to get across is Canada. And I was tour managing the Dresden Dolls that had um, really uh, unique, cool merch. And um, it's really the merch that can be a problem in Canada. So no matter what the country is, you know, Ask the promoter in advance, like, how should we handle merch? Should we ship it ahead? Should we print in Canada? But just really quick, like, I remember being in this customs line at the border with, like, all these truck drivers with cases of meat, and I just had Dresden Dolls merch undies, you know? Um, So, again, the promoter is your best friend to sort those things out. Um, But I just have to say, you know, so you played to 14 people at a festival in Wales, and it cracked your international career wide open. You just proved, or you just proved... An example that I gave last night, which I was when I where I was talking about, play your heart out no matter what. I don't yeah. care if there's two. I love that you know it's fourteen. You weren't like there was fifteen or twenty. It's like no, there were fourteen. Let, let me stress: uh, four of those people were a band from Nottingham who were on after us, <laughs> and then one of those was the sound engineer, two of the bar staff. So I'm I'm humbly saying fourteen, but there was really like six people that were industry delegates or uh, people. Um, but yeah, it, we were a last minute booking at that festival, so it shows yeah. that you can come in. There, kill it and then get something out of it and any opportunity is um worth its weight in gold if you put your heart out i always find yeah and whether it's industry people or not right you want to pick up those fans you want to make them fans for life you don't want to be like oh this sucks like there's only 10 people here or whatever right so play your heart out you never know what's going to happen and then you know if you can grab the mobile phone number and email address of those fans so you can retain them for the long haul when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I just, you know, shared information on on business affairs. If you don't mind, you know, sharing, how do you guys handle songwriting splits as well as any conversations around, you know, payments for recording and gigs? You you don't need to share, like, the specifics, but how do you, like, approach those conversations? Like, when do you have those those chats? Um, Well, we started uh, the band Erlu in 2014, and we had it when we were just discussing the band. Yeah before we'd even started writing together, we decided that we was an equal split and there was three of us in the band. So it's like, you know, 33%, 0.33% across the board. Nice. And we do that so that everyone puts an equal effort. Yep. It's like what you were saying about the Chris Martin mm-hmm. effect with, you know, the best idea wins in the studio. But for us, it was more so that everyone puts the equal efforts into mm-hmm. the band. Because um, in the reality, if you're only getting 5% from a project and someone else is getting 95% if you're in a two-piece, so... 
if someone, the other person is expecting you to put in 50% of the effort in terms of promoting it and, you know, doing all this stuff at shows and stuff, but then reinvesting the cost back into the project, you can't justify that. So yeah. from day one, we just had an equal split from the beginning and it just clears things up. Um, and we've just gone from that ever since. And so we treat everything we do in Erlu as a democracy. And because we're a, a three-piece, it's really um, worked quite well because two always outweigh one. You know, um, but that's just how we've done it. So, yeah. Maybe. Absolutely. I love it. Okay. So let's dig in, um, you know, to your career history. So you, you, you have this incredible career as a musician, but you also have a phenomenal career, career on the industry side as well. So yeah. your entry point into the industry appeared to be at festivals, including No Tomorrow, Latitude, and V-Fest as a crew member, leading the bar staff, which is no small task, and working as an artist liaison. So how did you initially secure those positions? Uh, they're three very different kind of positions, really. Um, the latitude thing was a classic, like apply to work at a festival um, on the bar and I end up becoming a team leader. And they just kind of uh, like assigned that to me before because wow. I had bar, bar experience. Um, so that happened. That was over you know, the course of the festival. And it's quite a stressful position trying to get um, people that don't really want to be working at a festival for free um, to a bar to work a shift. And deal with drunk people. Yeah, 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 it's it's quite a challenge. So you have to play, you learn very quickly how to say no to people and how to play Mm -hmm. bad cop. And I'd say, like, if you're going to do anything in the industry, like, learning how to say no in the politest possible way is um, a really good asset to learn, you know. Um, The, what was the other one? The V-Fest thing, that was for Mercedes Mm -hmm. VIP. So I've kind of done a lot of work for Mercedes VIP and it's basically you're a glorified um, taxi driver, but you're driving VIPs around yeah. in six-figure sum cars. So things like G-Wagons and Mercedes Maybach limos and stuff like that. Um, I've got a driving license. I knew a guy who worked at Mercedes VIP. He was going to a festival and said, I need drivers. And I just put my hat in the ring and said, I'll do that. And that's snowboard where I've done V-Fest, um, the Teenage Cancer Trust Week at the Albert Hall with... Uh, Roger Daltrey and uh, Def Leppard and driven bands like that around for a long time. Um, yeah, and you just get to know and work with people and then they find out they're doing another festival and you just get onto that. And so it's it's kind of like who you know situation, but yeah. as soon as you can find one of those situations, just jump in it and, you know, it's only free in the short term. You will, yeah. You'll recoup the costs through more work and building up your CV later. Yeah, so don't be don't be afraid to apply. That's what you did at first. Yeah, just be, yeah. if you don't ask, you don't get. Just yeah. be cheeky a little bit, and you know, with a smile on your face, and you'll get somewhere. So. Exactly, and do a good job, and do the things you say you'll do. Yeah, yeah. it sounds basic, but it's it is basic. But a lot of the best things in life come from the most boring way of doing it, and it's just like you know, little bits of graft every day. You know, and I'm a big believer in just doing one hour a day on your craft. Yeah. And you know, while that sounds like nothing, it's actually kind of hard to fit an hour in your day. Mm-hmm sometimes you know depending on what your day is but if you can say right seven hours a week is going to go into my creative practice and that can come from whatever variant you know yeah those boring things can pay off like standing in the visa queue in manchester for your chinese visa yeah yeah you know don't go to china without that (laughs) definitely not no so in your early festival days, you also became head of marketing at BSV Studios here in Nottingham, mm. which is a position you held for years. So I hear from studio owners and producers all of the time asking how they can spread the word on their work since they're a bit more behind the scenes. What tips do you have for folks like that when it comes to online marketing, in-house events, and business development? We did a, a few things at BSV. So BSV was the studio ran by my band member, and I offered to help him with the promotion and marketing because that's what I was good at 
really. Um, and we did all sorts of things like offers where if you suggest a band, you get 50% off your rehearsal. So it became a word of mouth tactics and feet on the ground and things. Right. We used to do events in the studio. So one thing we did with my band was invite, do an open invite to all our fans to come down and record backing vocals on our album for one of our songs. And it just meant we had 80 people in the room singing on our record. And then when the record came out, you had 80 people promoting your album for you. So it was like lovely little stuff like that. But then in turn, all those people promoted the studio too. Um, there's the producer that we're recording our current album with at the moment, Russell Clark. He's done a brilliant thing for years purely for the creative magic of it but it's actually became such a lovely thing where he hires a location in a remote area uh once a year for a, two months um over february and march like at the downtime of when that accommodation is at its cheapest so he has it for two months and then just sublets the weeks to different bands to give them writing and recording retreats um and it's been brilliant for him because bands are just clutching at the chance to get away and spend six days being purely creative and not having to worry about you know professional work life and home life and stuff and they can just go there get their head in a project for six days and record it and then go away so i think that's a brilliant tactic what he's doing and it's just meant that he's been you know booked out and he just spends those two months a year recording bands and projects and then he spends the remaining of the six months of the year um mixing them yeah. <laughs> which is a big task you know to do that in bulk but he does that knowing then he's got two months at the end of the year to find acts for the next year but the word of mouth because it's such a lovely way of doing it is bands just soak it up you know and we did that with our current album in march and it's just gorgeous you just go to the yorkshire dales and you, but it could be anywhere it could be like ireland or france it doesn't matter you know it's that, i think that's been brilliant for him you know and he takes all of his outboard and studio gear with him and sets up a DIY kind of canvas, really. So, yeah. I love that. And obviously, you know, producers and studio owners are, are artists too, right? So just put yourself out there. You know, have a website, be on social media, have an email list, have a text club. Yeah. Um, so you you also stayed with your live roots by working in ticketing at, is it the Glee Clubs or Glee Club? Is that... Yeah, the Glee Club is a comedy okay. um, venue in Nottingham. Great. Yeah. yeah, here in Nottingham. So what skills did you develop working at a venue on top of your festival experience? Because those are different. They are different. And the Glee Club as a comedy club is very different to a music venue. Um, I've spent the best part of like 15 years working in music venues and or just venues in general. But in, in comedy, it's very different because it's very... Um, interval based so yeah. you'll find like the crowd come in there's a section to the show there's a rush at the bar the crowd come in there's a rush at the bar and it's the same with the ticketing kind of aspect um and the types of audiences you get at different types of events is for sure different like when you, people go to a festival it's very like loose and people dabble in all sorts of different things a music venue people go for one certain thing and then and comedy is typically people go for an experience more so than to see one specific person i've generally found so uh, yeah you've it's interesting that the different venues have to do different kind of tax to keep people in and to give the best kind of customer experience like for a music comedy venue it has to be a diverse lineup and people have to enjoy it and that kind of respect and get something out of it at the end but they don't know what it's going to be and a music show is like the band have to do their best and the venue has to provide what the band needs to give that best experience for the band to give to the crowd. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a different... It's kind of a little reversed, really, but it's uh, generally there. 
Um, that's interesting. I my um, previous management company managed comedians as well. My mm. business partner did that. I was more like the comedy, you know, comedy spouse. Like when comedians would try to network with me, I'm like, you really want to talk to her. Um, but we were managing a comedian named Margaret Cho, and she did mm. her first musical comedy album. And when she was working on the demos, my business partner at the time said, oh, one of the tracks leaked. You know, what do we do? I'm like, great, get it out there. Spread the word, you know? But she quickly explained to me that um, one way comedy is different from music is you don't necessarily want to hear your favorite joke over and over the way you want to hear your favorite song over and over. Yeah, this is interesting because uh, Ricky Gervais had a conversation about this with... um He's the guy that does comedians fast cars getting uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> and Jerry Seinfeld's his kind of um, ethos in comedy is that you should give your ten percent best ten percent every time. Yeah. Because people don't want to see your weakest five percent as a joke. Right. Which is interesting because Ricky Gervais rewrites 100% of the show every time because he's so afraid of people seeing the same joke twice. Yeah. Which a joke doesn't really work twice. But then if you go and see the Rolling Stones and the idea of seeing them, they don't play Jumping Jack Flash or something like that, it's just mental. Yeah. You walk away like livid, you know. So it's very interesting in different types of, uh, you know, art forms like that, I think. Yeah, super interesting. Agreed. And, you know, again, not to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but along those same lines, I just saw Conan O'Brien. He must have been talking to a comedian as well. Um, and he was saying like how challenging it can be when charity gigs and all these folks are like, Oh, just come host, just come do a thing. And he's like, they don't understand. I have to write a whole thing. I'm so jealous of Paul Simon who just gets up there and plays one of his, one of his, uh, I think he was, he might've been talking to Seinfeld. I'm jumping around. Anyway, it's like <laughs> Paul Simon can just play, you know, um, Mrs. Robinson and everyone's like thrilled, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah. Conan's like, that's my whole weekend. That's my whole week. Like, yeah. so anyway. Yeah. There's a lot to learn from uh, both art forms, that's for sure. Yeah. So you then became, uh, back to your career, uh, booking manager for the Riverside Festival, which is also here in Nottingham, uh, booking all of the acts for the big top stage in 2018 and 2019. So how did you approach booking for those years and what type of artists were you looking for? Like what stood out to you? Um, It was someone from the production crew that I'd worked previously at a different festival and you knew that I was working at DHP and um, stuff at the time, just booking local acts. And he said, uh, can you book this festival um, stage that I've been given uh, control over? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to, you know. And the festival stuff for me is, uh, from a personal level, it's just a lovely way for me to give back to the people that have put the effort in over the year in different ways where I've worked with them or whether they've proven themselves. And I think, you know, it would be good to get you in front of people. And it's one of those opportunities where you don't have to promote it to get all the ticket income because there's already going to be a footfall there. Mm -hmm. So that for me has been a way of rewarding bands that I've worked with over the year who have um, sold out shows or they've like done good things basically, or they're on track and they're in that level where they couldn't necessarily bring a hundred people to a headline show, but they could maybe like play in front of a hundred people and they would love it and then I would book them for a a headline show so I would use the festival to kind of benefit the artist in some different ways and yeah there's different all the artists I've booked for those festivals have been different kind of level but um in terms of me getting there it was um someone asking me because I was already doing that in a different format in the venues and they just asked me to do that there so I've been doing that for about five years now but yeah it's been good so it sounds like there's two approaches there and we did a 
deep, deep dive into this on our live episode in season two. I had a big concert promoter on, but also had a big festival promoter on. And so, um, you know, if an artist approaches you, if you're booking a festival and is like, I'm good for two, you know, 200 hard tickets. Do hard tickets mean the same thing in the UK as it does in the US? Hard ticket as in sold ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm translating. But okay, yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. So I've sold, you know, 200 headlining tickets. Someone paid to see you. That's going to be very appealing to you for the festival, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thing because the way I approach um, booking tours with my own band is I say, we've last time we played in your region, we did a headline show and we sold X tickets. Yeah. And then exactly. that person can then say, okay, well, they're worth this at right. this monetary. So you say it's a £10 ticket and you sold 50 last time, that promoter knows that you're worth £500. So they might offer you a guarantee of 300 versus an 80% deal or something yeah. like that, which is quite common. Is that mm -hmm. common in the US? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I... I used to shy away from those deals as a as band but actually i love them now because it's always worked out in my favor um but yeah it's different ways i suppose yeah and like i said we've done live episodes uh, episode eight of this season will be a live episode so we'll do a deeper dive breaking down deals but you also said you know it's a great way to you know give back to bands too so that to me that sounds very relationship driven right yeah i mean like I've spent a lot of my time booking tours for my own band or other bands. Uh, when Korean artists come to UK, I'll book them a little tour and things like that. Or, um, you know, when I'm in the venues at like Rough Trade or Rescue Rooms or wherever I've been before, I've been booking artists into those places. And the way I'm giving back is that if, say, for example, you know, like one year Molly Ralph, she sold out Rough Trade and it went out, tickets sold out in a heartbeat. And I thought, you know, you've put a really good show on and people loved it and people would love you at a festival and you put the effort in so yeah. I'll give you another opportunity where I can and there's little things like that but then there's also things where a band have applied from out of town and I know they're not worth any tickets in Nottingham but they're such a great band that I want to put them on for people to see and then hopefully I can offer them a show where they mm -hmm. can reap the rewards of an income from a show but also just have their own headline show in Nottingham as well, where I'll offer them a festival slot because I know that they, people don't know about them enough yet. So, you know, there's, there's different ways and tacks, and there's never, like, one or the other for me. Right. You know, it might be something that someone has applied for a festival for me, like, ten or a show for me, or support slot for, like, ten times, and I just have never found something I can get them on, but maybe that would be suited to. So, yeah, it's quite fluent, really. But, um, yeah, generally, the music has to be there, and yeah. generally they have to be... A person that's easy to work with that's and right yeah if i gotta say like if, as a venue booker mm -hmm. if you apply for shows in a way that's easy for me you're way way more likely to get shows so it, and it doesn't even take extra time to do it it's just you, you, you could even just do it with a template you could form yeah. over 10 minutes once and then use that for the rest of your life but you won't believe the amount of bands and emails i get every week that's you know, I was off last week, for example, and I came back to 338 emails mm -hmm. from bands asking for shows. And uh, I'd say at least 50% of them didn't even have links and yeah. didn't, to music. They didn't even, like, say when they want the show. Um, they don't know, like, what kind of show they want to work on, if it's a headline or a festival or a support slot. So, yeah, it's I'm... Uh, I'm on a tangent here, but it's, no, I love it's, it. it's, uh, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. I have literally an email template in the book on how to book a show. It's like short. Buy the book. Buy the book. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. <laughs> uh, short, to the point, here's the info. Because yeah. you've got 338 emails to sort through. 
yeah, and at the end of the day, like I've, I'm quite cold with some responses like that. If I had one about three weeks ago where a band said, "Can we have a gig at Rough Trade?" and that was it. And I was like, even your band, even the email was like stew four five six at yahoo dot com right. or something like that. It's like I don't even know. I can't even look at the band from based on your email. So it's yes. like, hey, help me help you, you know, and stuff like that. But sometimes bands will have all the stuff that have the press kit and all this kind of stuff, and they'll say, "Can we have a show?" And I'll, then I'll have to reply saying, "When yes. and what kind of show?" And like, do you want a headline or do you want to support or like, you know? Yeah. So. If you email someone say specifically what you want to do and how you want to do it and when generally you're looking, or if you don't mind about the date, in which case it makes it slightly easier for me yeah. too, then, you know, just, just make it easy as possible, folks. It's, yeah. uh, it's quite easy, really, you know. And I assume you like it if someone says, like, this is my album release show or... Oh, yeah, love it. Yeah. And I, I love it as a booker because um, people's first date... I've always said from a local perspective, like, people's first headline shows are always generally their biggest because... Mm. I've I've seen it over like the seven years working at DHP and I've seen it three years over working at Rough Trade um, where you'll you book your first ever he- like local show and people are never ever have confidence in themselves at that point. But let's just say you book your headline show and the promoter wins your heart and you think, yeah, okay, well, I will do it. What always happens is the band's bring the crowd and it generally like brings in way more than they expected and typically it sells out because everyone's there to support you on your first ever big thing. Mm-hmm. It's the second show after that that's always the harder one to break because this is before you've got an agent, before you've got like yeah. a, a dedicated promoter or something like that. Um, and I've seen it time and time again where like some greedy bookers will book that band into a bigger venue saying, mm-hmm. oh, they've sold out this 200 cap club. We'll put them on the 400 cap club. And that breaks my heart. And I'm, I really don't like that um, because what always happens is all the mums and dads and the friends of the band came to the first show and then the band want them to come to the second show, but everyone's looking around at that first show going, God, they've made it. This is great. Everyone's here to speak. And they feel like the only one in the audience that is there as somewhat a favor. And when the second show hits, they sell like half the tickets or the same amount of tickets. And then it's like a lackluster show, which is really tough on the band's kind of momentum. And it breaks any kind of uh, reward for the band at that level. So, always underplay your shows as well as something my band does we always play a smaller capacity than we know we could sell tickets for um because if you've got sold out sold out sold out sold out you're going to get attention from labels and agents and stuff like that so it sounds like a bit basic but no No. bands really do that i i have never thought of that before that that second big show so would you recommend that you know after that big you know album release show friends and family everyone's there get all their email addresses and mobile phone numbers even if they're friends and family that they should have a lower ticket price on that second show no i'd just say just make sure that the capacity is at a level you think you could do and generally there's, an, there's this kind of way of thinking that I've said to so many local people, and I hope it's, like, getting in there now. But I always say, like, for a five-piece band, say you've got three five-piece bands on yeah. a lineup, it's mental that they can't sell out a 150-cap club like totally. Rough Trade Totally. It's yeah. crazy to me. And the reason I think that is because if you've got five people in a band, each band member should be bringing ten people each, easily because if you think about let's just say we'll use me for example if i bring my partner and she brings a best friend and then i've got my sister my brother and my mom and dad that's six people 
you know. And then let's say I've got one genuine fan, just one genuine fan, and then they have a plus one. We're at eight, and then I've got my best friend and my best friend. So that's, that's just ten people, and that's only two fans. That's actually just one fan, you know, before the band actually have any fans. So if I'm in a five-piece band, that's me bringing ten people, mm-hmm. and then the other four guys should bring ten people each. That's 50 people per band. So it's mental that you can't sell a 150-cap club. And a lot of the time I find out that people just don't really put the effort into promo yes. properly. I've had bands where there's been three, four, five-piece bands and they play rough trade and there's like 10 people in the audience and they say oh this is really hard man you know you you know we can't cover the higher feed tonight and you know like can you let us off and I used to be that guy I was like oh yeah it's a shame and but the more I've gone through it and experienced it it's actually not that hard I think people just aren't promoting it or maybe the bands in support weren't promoting it and everyone's played one of those shows where one band has brought all the people and then the other bands haven't how good would it be if everyone had that unified kind of effort in a show and just promoted it equally and as hard as you can? Because I think there's this mentality, the more shows you play, the bigger you'll get, and that's far from it. Mm -hmm. But it's really the more shows you play with 100-plus people, Mm -hmm. sold-out shows, then, of course, you'll do it. But you've got to find... uh, You've got to have that relationship from the start and everyone just has to have a unified response because... I tell you what, like I've seen it where the first band on stage plays to 150 people, and the night just gets better and better and better and better because they've set the show up. It's amazing, you know, and everyone's there to enjoy it and support each other, and it's it's just te- always always better, you know. So I don't know understands really why people don't do like that, but yeah. And like you said, you reward that at festivals, right? So yeah, even if yeah. even if a band. Um, doesn't draw a lot of people, but you see they've been tagging the venue, they've been pushing it out and promoting. That's the thing. It's like, and we'll talk about this more in episode five, or sorry, episode seven, how to market with or without a budget. You know, make sure you're tagging the venue, make sure you're tagging the other artists so they can pop in in the stories and they can spread the word, right? Because even if you're just typing out, you know, the venues that you book, it's like, well, you don't know that if it's not tagged. So it's like you want to reward that effort and maybe you'll give them a second chance even if it's not super packed, I would yeah. assume. Yeah, and it goes with bands and promoters, really. If the bands are, and the promoters are constantly asking you to share you know, this on your Instagram stories or share this on right. your socials and update the ticket link and asking for ticket counts, it makes me go, oh, well, they care about the event. Yeah. And while sometimes it makes me feel like they're quite high maintenance to work with, on other times I've repped them and told them and suggested they work at other bigger venues and stuff when I can't have that capacity for myself and you know those are the people that get rewarded the ones that care about it and put the effort in really for sure every time and the high maintenance people just make you a better booker or artist anyway so work with them you know even if they're a pain in the butt just do it because they'll just you'll just reap the rewards in some other ways that's very kind of you so you've also done booking and promotions for Splendor Festival. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so I work for DHP Family, which is a, a national promoter in, in the UK, but they're based in Nottingham. Um, and yeah, they've got one of their festivals is a 20,000 capacity festival. Noel Gallagher played this year, for example. Um, but I used to book some of the local acts and stuff for the opening slots on the big stages and the all-day thing on the courtyard stage, which is kind of like a smaller stage, the third stage, let's say. Um, and again, that was me like giving it to bands who have put in the effort and done their own sold out shows over the year. Um, a big part of what I did at DHP Family was um, kind of being 
the person for, or at least one of the people that was in connect with all the local bands and bringing them up and offering support slots and and booking things like Dot Dot Festival and Splendor Festival and like that. And yeah, a lot of the time it would be me offering it to people who have put the effort in and had successful shows in some way over the year, you know. Um, Splendor Festival was a bit of a different one where mm-hmm. it would be less of a chance for me to get a band who was played to nobody right. in. But it was more so like rewarding the bands that had had a sold out show or they brought 200 people to mm-hmm. that 250 cap club, you know, that that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was kind of um, kind of that really. Amazing. What an evolution. So simultaneously, you, you've worked as a city coordinator and worked in bookings for the Dot to Dot Festival, coordinating yeah. over 30 venues. What tips do you have to execute working on a multifaceted project that large? Um, I spend my whole life, even now, on Google Sheets. And I love my notes. Tab. My, my notes thing on my iPhone is my most used tab for me, just having a to-do list that I can chip away at every day. Um, but just collecting data and, you know, you can reuse that next year. Every time you write someone's email and phone number and name and address and stuff like that down in a Google spreadsheet, it will come into use in the future, I promise you. So just while it's a pain in the butt to do it once, it will it will just help you in the future. So... I've got like a from from I've got one from a band. I've got one for my personal bookings, and you know when I help bands book the tours and stuff. But um, just having a contact list and things like that, and then having a template sheet, and then having one that is like a how many tickets did I bring to this show? And like every, I've got a mm-hmm. spreadsheet where it's like every show I've ever done, with how many tickets I sold nice. that night, how much income I did, so that I can go back when I'm booking a tour in those regions or those cities again. I can say to this thing, oh, last time we played there, we did 48 tickets and the ticket price was 15 quid and this did. And, you know, and those that data is so useful for the bookers to then say whether it's worthwhile doing it next time. Um, but for the festivals element, it was more so just keeping in contact. And I've got, mm-hmm. um, you would be shocked at how many, it's probably edging on 5,000 acts now, local acts from Nottingham on a spreadsheet I've got now with emails and for fans of and genres and stuff like that so that I can say, oh, this support slot's come up, this festival's um, happening, it's this kind of thing, I need acts that sound like The Cure and then I'll filter it through and then look, search The Cure and it'll have like maybe 16 acts and, you know, who's still active right now and filters it like that, so. Wow, I love it. That's amazing. There's so much we can learn from you. What is DHP family in Nottingham and, and tell us about your work there? Yeah, so the National Promote in the UK, they're really great. They've done um, they've done some incredible and still continue to do some incredible gigs and um, festivals. They've got they own like Bearded Theory as well as things like Dot to Dot and Mirrors Festival in London. Um, but on top of that, they own venues in Nottingham like Rock City, Rescue Rooms, and Bodega, and they have those so that they have um, venues to climb for bands and touring bands and different capacity venues to offer. So, what say? Coldplay's first ever show in Nottingham, Bodega, 200 people. Um, second show in Nottingham's Rescue Rooms and goes to Rock City, 2,000 people. So they've got that elevation yeah. to climb. And they have the same ethos in other cities. They're working like they've got Thecla, which is a big boat venue in Bristol. Cool. And they have um, multiple venues in uh, London, like Oslo. And they had the Borderline in Soho and um, the Garage and Hackney and things like that. So, yeah, they own venues, but they own the venues because they know... They can offer um, the artists and the agents um, that different level of venues to climb and that support over 
their career rather than just the one-off show in a 200 club club and then that band goes to a different promoter when it needs to go to a bigger club club so their kind of thing is about sticking with an artist and helping it grow and things like that and that's a really good thing to pay attention to when you're playing shows right like is Mm. this just owned and operated by one you know one group or one person or can they help or help us like support bigger artists too yeah it's quite common for like promoters in dhp and to be as um once you get in touch with an agent that agent will almost always just email you you know and then you just work with their bands and stick with them for a long time which you know is a huge asset it makes it easier to get shows for both sides really because you just know who to go to all the time absolutely you've also done booking and management for acoustic rooms in nottingham what Mm -hmm. was your experience there prior to the pandemic yeah so that was an open mic that's probably the longest running open mic in nottingham um and i managed there for like five six years um until lockdown hit um, and that's the, an open mic that happened every single Monday at Rescue Rooms. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Acoustic Rooms now. And my friend Laurie, who I used to pay to host it, has now man- taken over and he manages that now. Um, but it was great. It, that was the night where it's an 80 capacity room and it allowed me to, with all the open mic people that will come in, you know, if ever any one of them would come in with like 20, 30 people, I was like, oh, great. Well, maybe I'll offer you a support slot and see if you want to do that. And then that's, you know... Um, I know there's people in this audience that have played there and stuff I can see already, but it's um, it's a lovely like local thing that it was kind of like a scouting thing, really. And it's always free entry, half price drinks, just as a way of getting people in to see local musicians and allowing them to road test their new material acoustically and stuff like that. And the way I used to bring something different into that is I used to book one featured act mm-hmm. in who then... Right. The open mics before and after would be effectively the supports, but the featured act would be someone from out of town or someone who had proven themselves at acoustic rooms and couldn't necessarily bring a, a sold out 150 cap room, but mm-hmm. could maybe bring 50 people. And so I'd give them the featured night and give them that promo through that way. So, yeah. Great. So for our international audience, you know, that are looking to play Nottingham, check out acoustic rooms. I 100%, would say. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I used to book acts from all over the world there. So, yeah. Love it. Over the past two years, you've been the events manager at the iconic Rough Trade here in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your role and, and what you have planned moving forward. Yes, Rough Trade is, uh, I'm bar and events manager there, but rough, all Rough Trades are uh, first and foremost a vinyl store. Mm-hmm. And upstairs in, in Nottingham, we have a music venue, as a lot of you might know. But I'm the person that manages the venue side of it. So I'm booking the acts in, I'm managing the day-to-day of the venue, I'm doing the mundane tasks like stock takes and all the bar stuff and reordering stock for the shows, I'm managing staff rotors, um, I'm working with um, freelancers like engineers and security companies and booking them and making sure that when I advance the shows, if they need extra security on for certain days, then it's all there. But booking the shows in and managing those shows as well, so... It's I've, I, it's somewhat of a privilege in a way where that I get to book the shows in and work the shows as well because I'm meeting those people that I'm booking in every night. Whereas there's other companies like when I was at THP, I was booking the shows for these artists but was, wasn't able to be at all of them because then I'd be working something mental like an 80-hour week, you know, because my it was a day job effectively. Um, so it's a different kind of tact what I'm doing now, but it's, I'm effectively just the venue manager there. Um, but a lot of what we do at Rough Trade is the live and signings, which is all album release product based. And it's a help of trying to working with the labels to try and get the artists in pursuit for chart positions, like in the top 40. And that's huge there. That's probably the bread and butter for Rough Trade. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
So you clearly know and love the scene here. What makes Nottingham's music community so special? Um, it's, well, it's interesting because my band and I talk a lot about this when we're touring around and stuff, and we always come back to say how Nottingham has a lot of um, support avenues that we used to have things like music, there's obviously introducing kind of things, but even just having things like confetti and it's got a real big, strong um, music hub in education and support. Um, there's also a lot of different types of com promoters and what's really good about Nottingham that people oversee a lot is there is a progression in venue capacities here. So it allows people to come here and play a 40 cap club yeah. like at Chameleon or JT Saw. And then it allows you to come back and play an 80 cap, 100 cap show at somewhere like the Angel uh, or Red Room. And then it allows you to play a 150 cap club at Rough Trade. And you can grow right from playing to 50 people in a room to playing 10,000 people at the arena. And there's so few cities that have that. So, for example, like in, I've met bands from all over the place. But when I was in um, Hungary, I was speaking to a band there. And between a 100 cap club in Budapest, say, there's. Yeah next to no venues that are anything before you get 2000 so there's imagine playing 100 cap clubs and there's that proper diy circuit and then you don't have anything to play until you can play something like rock city which is kind of crazy when you think about it in the uk but it's not really thought about there in the same way and so the way the 2000 cap clubs work in europe versus nottingham is that bands will get paid to do 2000 cap venues but wouldn't be expected to bring all that kind of people so their promo videos look amazing because <laughs> everyone's playing these great things with great visuals and stuff like that but then there's no one in the crowd you know so it's a very different thing but i love that about knots that there's a different yeah venue capacity so it allows people to grow it allows you to keep selling out shows if you keep underplaying it right and um and it's also a small enough city so that locally in the music scene if you're walking around you can bump into somebody you know almost all the time and there's a lot of festivals here too yeah so we've got like Beat the Streets and um, uh, Dot to Dot Festival, which DHP things. We've got Hockley Hustle, um, there's Deer Stock and things like that. You know, so it's um, you know Waterfront Festival. We're really big on festivals in Nottingham, so I think there's a good music scene and there's a diverse amount of artists and genres, which keeps it interesting as well. So whoever artist is coming from internationally or on agencies to tour here there's almost always a, a support opportunity going for the local bands as well. So it's a good place to be a local musician, I'd say, that where there's a live opportunity for everybody. Very cool. So last question for me, and then we'll open it up to any audience questions. What does building a sustainable music career mean to you? Um, I, well, I, it's interesting because, you know, I suppose that changes for everyone. But for me, it's not having one set... Um, way of having an income mm -hmm. so I, i'm quite heavy into doing freelancing stuff like that um whether that's like helping bands or doing stuff for mercedes vip or um booking tours for other artists and being my own kind of independent agent for bands and just helping them on the side or from an educational kind of thing where i come in and teach people about guitar pedals because i'm a pedal junkie and things like that um you know it's just find different ways of doing that mm -hmm. so keep it open you don't, don't have one revenue stream Amazing. Absolutely. We'll, we'll dig into all the revenue streams that are owed to you in episode 10, uh, owed to you if you write, record, slash release, and play live. So um, let's open it up to questions. I think we're going to have an audience mic. Some, oh, yeah, right over here. Yeah, I'm just trying to turn it on. Okay. So any, yeah, we have a question over there. Any questions for Sam um, or me? And also, I'm doing something at, Conf at Confetti today. I don't know if that's open to everyone. Is that open to everyone? 
Okay, no, sorry. So, so you have me now too. So it doesn't have to be on today's topic, you know, AMA for any of us. Hello, hello. Um, hi, so you were talking about like, um, so like, um, I've never like arranged a gig before, but um, so like say if you were a new like musician and you were looking to like play at a venue like Rough Trade or any little gigs, how exactly then would you go about arranging that? Would you, could you not just like walk into the venue and say, I want to play a gig? Would it have to be more specific than that? Um, it depends on the venue, I'll be honest. Yeah. For, for me specifically, I have people come in and just ask at the counter and they give people my email. Uh, people call the shop. But generally, I think if people email me yeah. and say what kind of event they want to put on, what sort of day in the week you want to do it. So you could say, I want it to be on a Friday or Saturday. Don't care when it is, but it needs to be on a Friday yeah. or Saturday. And then some of the bands say, "Oh, I need it in this date range because we're promoting this at this time." Yeah. So, so, so uh, give me a date range so that I can at least look at the availability in the calendar, um, and then just say whether it will be a ticketed thing or a free entry thing or mm. something like that. Because I'll I'll give you the higher fee, and the, we've got I've designed my text back at Rough Trade specifically for promoters and bands. Um, having that experience myself, like when people send me stuff, it used to frustrate me that you get sent five different PDFs. Like you've got the, mm. the rate card, which is how the, well, the all high fees and stuff on the venue, and then you've got the tech spec, and then you've got you know the hospitality rider spec, and it's just like messy. So I put everything in a really well-presentive thing with a load of pictures for you. And to make it as easy as possible for both the promoter and the band really to know, yeah. oh, do they have risers on the stage at Rough Trade? And you can scroll down and see the equipment list and stuff on there. That's cool. Um, but yeah, when I, I booked my first ever tour when I was 17 around the UK. And when I did that, it, was, it came from a string of booking um, kind of a load of sold out shows in my local village of Radcliffe on Trent. I wasn't even Nottingham at that point, but I'd had a series of like, sold-out shows and stuff from my um, school and friends and stuff like that. And the way I booked my first tour wasn't through me going, um, I'm going to make it like this. It was me wanting to make it like that and not understanding how bands did it. So going back to that You're in Stupid Ones thing, I used to call, I used to, like... It, this is before the days of Google. It was like Ask Jeeves and uh, Yahoo and stuff, <laughs> showing my age a little bit now. But I used to go like effectively at the time, Google a venue and then call them. I used to call them and I used to speak to some bar guy or bar woman on the phone. And I'd be like, hi, is um, Judy there? Um, I'd like to book um, a show in. And they were like, oh, God, no, Judy's not worked here for years. Where do you get this number from? You know, like that. And I'd be like, oh, okay, that's that. But I can give you the email or the phone number of the booker. So it's kind of GDPR rules gone mental right now. But that's how I did it at 17 because I was just so naive. And what I knew was I wanted to do a tour because that's what all the cool bands were doing. And I thought, well, if you want to be a cool band, you've got to do a tour. So I did that. And bearing in mind I was 17, I'd just passed my like, driving license and stuff. We couldn't hire a van because you've got to be 25 or over to hire a van so I bought a trailer and a tow bar I fitted the tow bar on my Citroen Belingo and built a trailer out of pallet wood wow. so what I would say is if you want to do it there's a way of doing it you just got to get out there and do it and there's yeah. no wrong way of doing it because you're in stupid ones and just call the venues and you book a show in and then just do that the day after and the day before 
and do that the day before and after that. And you've got a five-day tour. So once you book one show and learn how to book one show, booking a tour is actually quite easy. You just do that on a national level in different cities, but just make sure the dates are as compact as possible and yeah, the, yeah. the route is uh, cost-effective. So, ah, yeah. Thank you. It's just because um, um, me and a fellow musician actually performed a gig in P2 yesterday, but we didn't like arrange that. So I was just going to see about how you know arranging that yeah you, you you'll put on better shows if you do your own show because mm. you'll learn what it takes mm-hmm. to sell a show out yeah you know, I'd, I'd recommend any band to do it at least once at least once you know um but yeah just get people behind you rally it and you know Ooh. hire the venue as well you know if i know it sounds scary and you could just do a free show but if you want to mm-hmm. get some income and reinvest in your own project to grow it further do a hired show and put on a ticketed show because you'll you'll get that's what my band do we just reinvest all the money every time yeah. and a lot of people are scared of ticketed shows but if people buy a ticket they're going to come whereas people will happily take a free entry ticket just to say yeah i've got my free entry ticket mate i'll come in and see you there but they would never come in, in the first place yeah you know so yeah thank you for that yeah sam how far in advance do you want to be contacted for artists to play rough trade um at the moment i'm booking like six to nine months ahead Right? So that's important to know to get ahead of it. And also, um, I'm big on email tracking. So there's like a tool called Boomerang for Gmail, and you can see if your emails have been read because you might email someone and be like, oh, they don't care. But if you don't have that read receipt, maybe it went in a spam, you could follow up. That's maybe when you could give a call or stop by. So add email tracking uh, as well. Mm. One thing I do a lot is read an email and then mark it as unread when I'll reply when I can. Mm. I do that a lot, and it's not so that um, I'm not go- not going to reply, so that I make it that oh that's a good band I can't sort it right now, but yeah. I'll mark it as unread so I'll reply later. I do that all the time. Great, up here, front row. Hi. Uh, so you talked earlier about how Nottingham is really good for up and coming artists, like to get from one small venue to the next, like different stages and levels. Mm-hmm. How do you gauge when you think you're ready enough to like sort of move up a level? So, for example, if you're playing at the Angel, when do you think you're ready to move up to say Bodega? Have you uh, sold the Angel out yet? A second. Have you sold the Angel out yet? Uh, yeah. Like yeah. if you're selling like the angel, oh, so that would be like a good place to start gauging if you're selling out those venues. Yeah, there's uh, the ticketing partner at Rough Trade is uh, a ticketing agency called Dice.fm. Oh yeah, and I love them because it's all just digital, but the back end stats and data you can collect from people following on shows, whether it's a free entry show or a ticketed one, is amazing. And one thing that I do with my partners. Um, night she does a pots and pints night she's a ceramicist so she does a thing where she sells tickets to a night where you can come and play with mud and drink pints and then you get a bowl fired at the end of the night and it's really lovely but she's had 20 consecutive sold out nights now but one thing dice does which is what she uses is brilliant and they have a waiting list so that when someone can't go to your event and they can refund the tickets the people on the waiting list at the top will be offered that ticket and then they could buy the ticket, and when it happens again, and the waiting list goes up like that. But what you can see afterwards in the data is that you can have all of the, say it's a sold-out event at the Angel, which is about 120 cap, right? You have 120 people sold out, but you can see what the waiting list is. And if the waiting list is 80 people, that's 200 people, and you'll know that, right, maybe I'm okay to pay a 200-cap club. But what I would really say is always play somewhere that is about 25% less 
than what you think you could do. Like, sort of like underdo yourself a bit. So come play Rough Trade, is what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> I haven't played it like twice. Yeah, just because it's always better to sell it out and create that supply and demand than it is to have a gig that's half empty. Yeah. Because the environment would just be on fire and it'd be amazing. You know, I, like I say, going back to that thing where I've seen bands play 200 cap, sell it, and then they do a 400 cap and they half sell it, and it's the atmos- atmosphere is just weaker, and it, it, the momentum goes, and it's it's just really a, it's a really sad thing because the 400 cap thing for a local band to play is a feat. It's an amazing thing for people to do that and grow to that level. And it's, but I've seen it nine times out of ten, it doesn't really have the same effect that people wish for because your expectations are already higher from both the old, the crowd and the band's perspective. So, do you think like, if you go up a level, you, uh, like when should you start introducing stuff like merch? Like, as soon as possible. Yeah. As soon as possible. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. My band solely take gigs on, knowing that we'll make more money on merch than we will on the gig. Yeah. Honestly, I, I, honestly, I've made. That, I can't tell you how many times we've made more from merch than we have, and the merch is what pays for you to keep going. Yeah. And one thing I would suggest with merch is have merch at different price levels. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we have things from like bundles, which is. Everything, but at a discounted price, and that gives. If people wanted a bit of everything, and maybe you get this and this chucked in for an extra five, they'll do it because they just want to support. But what I will say is, have things from like lighters that you could sell for like three pounds. That's because some people there might not be able to afford like a twenty pound vinyl or twenty pound t shirt, but they might be able to afford like a ten pound CD. And some people might not be able to afford that, but they might be able to sell three pound. But what's really good from having my retail hat on is that. If they were buying the £20 vinyl, you've also got a really small product to upsell them. Yep. So you can say, right, here's a £20 vinyl. Can, do you want to take a lighter as well? Just help the band out a little bit. So yeah, it's £23 rather than £20. And a £3 doesn't sound like a lot, but you do that at 100 shows over the year, you've made an extra £300. So collectively, all of that stuff, like I definitely have merch with different levels of price stages and offer a bundle offer, which includes everything where they get it at a discounted rate, 100%. I, honestly, I make easily 50% of my band's income just on merch and I always laugh at those metal bands that come into a venue I see it at Rough Trade all the time and yeah we're like a tons of stuff yeah it's just mental I've been to like festivals in Europe and it's like I've done panoramas of like a big warehouse and it's just crazy but when you see that the bands really aren't in the music business they're in the retail business aren't they because they're just selling t-shirts for a living that's how they get the majority of their income so do it as soon as possible you just got an offer to play rough trade what are you guys called so sam knows bill sage okay stage name cool yeah and um yeah i mean just to echo what sam said like people can't buy your merch if it's not available so make it available green Green (laughs) t-shirts there you go great right here uh you were talking about uh visas earlier Mm. um so if I was to get a visa, how much would it be to obtain it? It depends on the country and how long you're going to be there for and what your purposes in the country are. So uh, for China, for example, uh, I think it was about £450. Wow. You know, And we were only there for five shows and three of them actually got cancelled in the end because there was a typhoon. So you can't even predict it, mate. And China was a loss. But we look at that stuff as a loss leader. So whilst... I've always thought it's interesting with uh, international stuff, like whilst it's like profitable in one way, you can still go abroad and play to 10 people. Mm -hmm. 
but the fee is generally going to be healthier because things like the European Union supports venues and gives them a flat rate for bands. Like you get £500 for paying a 100-cap club in Hanover, in Berlin, or uh, like venues in those places, whereas you would never get £500 for playing the Angel because the Angel doesn't reap that much money from the ticket income unless it's like a £20 ticket. Um, but in terms of the visas, it's like country-dependent. There's different things. In when you go to somewhere like the European Union, they do a lot of things with car nets now since Brexit, which is horrible. Pre-lockdown, it was a lot easier. You could just drive around wherever you want and have a... Can you explain you know. what that word means? Because that was a new word to me as a tour manager many years ago. Yeah, it's basically like a, a document you have to fill in with what you're taking in and out of each country. And it's a list of like all the sort of things that... So that when, it's like, you know, when you get back from an airport and it's like nothing to declare or something to declare. If you're there with 30 cases on a tour, you have to go into something to declare, even though you're not taking anything new into the thing specifically. But if you're taking even just an SM58 microphone in more, they'll, they can just turn you away from the border and say, no, go home and we're keeping all of this stuff. So it's important. It's a gear ma- manifest, basically. Just have a you know a list of, of of all your gear. And also, if you're playing an international festival, don't be afraid to ask them to cover the visas, right? See if you can get a fee plus flights plus hotel plus uh, visas. You're, you're not going to get it if you don't ask. What I will say is, I did my first ever like Asian stuff without. So we did Korea, but we didn't have any visas. And I don't want people to catch up. This is on record now. So it's, it's in the past. Could, you you made it back to the UK. Yeah, but what we've done for years is um, I was, we pay for a suitcase, which is like £40. And I learned this the hard way. But the first time I, I went out and did an um, international thing, I paid for my pedalboard separate. And it was $120 US dollars per way. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you've got a pedalboard each and a guitar each, it's easily £240 per person. And that's a lot of money. It's like a grand just to take your guitar and pedalboard. So what I did was I unscrew my neck from my guitar, wrap the neck in bubble wrap, put the guitar body in the soft case and fold the neck part over. And that's in one half of the suitcase, zip it up. The other half of the suitcase, I put my pedalboard in it and I make sure that I buy the Pedal Train classic Novo 24 size pedalboard because that's the only one that fits. It's sad that I know this stuff, but it's, <laughs> that's the only one that fits in a pedal board. And you can then just use your suitcase to go and tour places like that. Um, and we did that for quite a few countries before we started doing the visas and stuff. So it depends what you're doing it there. You know, like if you're playing like a, fe- a festival and they're not paying you, then there's ways of getting around that. You don't necessarily have to declare as many things. But if you're there and you're going to be selling merch or then that's a little bit different because you're making money in the country and they want to know about that. And also, I know it's not as comfortable, but um, you could share gear or use you know, local gear and stuff like that. I think we have time for one more question. Um, hello. Oh, Jesus. Um, so me and my band, were more of a band question. We're going to do our first tour next year. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like? Any tips, any pointers on what to do? Like... Because half the time we've said we're probably going to be sofa hunting half the time, but and just any tips on tour life when it comes to being in a band? Yeah, um, well, there's loads of ideas already. We, me and my band, bought our own van as early as possible because to hire a van you have to be over 25. Um, Hiring a van is at least 100, 150 pounds a day. 
if you're doing the tour miles. And some places offer it for £50 a day, but they'll charge you the mileage on top, which always comes up to 100 quid anyway. And when you do £100 over 10 days, it's like a grand. You could buy a shitty old van for... I'm sorry to swear. It's, but you it's could okay. Buy, it's an explicit podcast. Yeah, okay, good. We, we, you can easily buy an old knackered van for £1,000 anyway. Yeah. So, And you'll get to use that indefinitely. And maybe you could sell the van after the tour and make the money back anyway. So it's a free van. Um, I'd definitely recommend that I've owned loads of LDV convoys and Maxis and old ex-Royal Mail fans so that's a big one when it comes to couch surfing just put it on your social so can anyone put the band up for the week you know, speak to family and stuff like that look at places in between so you know I've countless times stayed with like you know tenuous uncles and stuff like that um, in the middle of nowhere en route to other places but when it comes to like booking the shows um, there's loads of simple things so look at your Instagram or Facebook data you can see like where fans are located so you know that if I book a venue oh I've got like 50 fans in Manchester and then you can book a show in Manchester um, for us all of our fans were always like in Scotland and stuff like that and of course the bulk of it is always going to be in your hometown but you'll quickly find that okay um, what I did with my first ever like tour when I was like 17 is I didn't have that. They didn't have data on socials at the time. So I did it where I had friends or family. Did I have friends at uni at this place? Did I have family in this town? And then I know that I'd got family there and I could like get my mum to hustle up all my aunts and uncles and stuff and tell them to bring their daughters and my cousins or whatever. And that's like 10 people, you know. And 10 people doesn't sound like a lot, but... 10 people for an out-of-town band for the first ever thing in a support slot in somewhere like Pontypool in Wales is way more than that bar has probably ever seen for an out-of-town never heard of you band before. So go where your fans and family and friends are. Don't book a show in Coventry if you don't know anyone there or don't have any fans there. It's just not going to be beneficial unless it's like a festival. The big thing I do with my band is we always book festivals, 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 because you're getting there, you're not expected to bring 100% of the crowd and you're playing to people that are already there. It's kind of a no-brainer, really. And then you can gain people and mailing list as well. That's the big one for me. The difference between social media and mailing list is huge. Like 5% of people on your social media that sees your post is considered good, which is mental. So on our Instagram, we've got like 12,000 people on our Instagram band page. But if only 3 to 5% of the people are seeing it, it's next to nobody. Whereas our mailing list, we've got about 1,500, 2,000 people on our mailing list now, which isn't loads, but we've got an 80% open rate and a wow. 15% click rate that actions something like buy a ticket, which is mental. Yeah. So that's like easily like 1,000 people opening and reading about you every time, yeah. whereas you'd never get that on Facebook, you know what I mean? So from day one, collect emails because Facebook won't matter one day. Instagram won't matter one day. I am that guy that's had a Bebo page and a MySpace page and they just aren't used anymore. So collect the emails because wherever people go, they'll have that same email and they'll use it on different social medias. Start now as soon as possible and take merch. Sam, thank you for echoing the sustainable part of um, building a music career because like that is what I am preaching constantly is collect mobile phone numbers, collect emails. So thank you for highlighting that. And I just also want to echo the power of metrics, right? Like make sure you're telling venues and you're telling bookers like, hey, Nottingham is like number two in the UK for me behind London, right? Like yeah. that's going to be appealing to you, I assume. Be, be honest about it. You know, yeah. I don't, I still book people in the venue that don't bring anybody. So if you know you can't bring anyone to the thing, then that's okay. I'll, but it just means yeah. I need to work a little bit harder if I like your band to find the right opportunity, like a festival or something like that for you. But if you can bring 40 people to a, 
place that isn't your own or amazing like 2000 people that's still worth something you know if you could only if you could bring like 30 people to an outside show in like you know Leicester or whatever mm-hmm. i would still book you but it would be for like a support slot or something like that or like still a festival slot or you know or maybe it would be with a headlines show but i'd book local supports that can bump those tickets up a little bit for you and work out the split for all three bands so it was fair you know i, I it's I, I promote a nightmare when a band say yeah last time we played nottingham it was 150 people mm-hmm. and then if that's a lie and you turn up and nobody came and this you know it's like why would i book you again you know because you're a liar and you're unreliable yeah. it's kind of like the worst of two so yeah just be honest it's, uh, promoters are still going to book you uh, i've the amount of times i've said it and i've said we've never played there before but on our facebook we've said we've got like 20 fans in the area i've got like aunts and uncles we have this rule that we can bring like 10 people per band member so i comfortably say we bring 30 people to paid entry and that, that's worth something you know and don't know your worth as well you know if you're going to sell five pound tickets to 100 people then you know remember what that's worth it's 500 quid stick to it yeah and again pay attention to your metrics because that'll help you guide your touring and not to be the tour mom but sleep you know take care of yourself because if you get sick Mm. um then then there's no touring um well sam that was absolutely incredible thank you so much let's give it up for sam everyone Awesome. So if you want to come down to uh, London tomorrow, we'll be in the iconic church studios where we'll be talking appropriately how to record with or without a budget and chatting with Christine. I need to learn how to say her last name, but she's amazing. Osa, Osa, I thought I heard someone saying it. Uh, Osa, Osa Zuwa. There we go. Um, thanks so much to The Metronome, uh, Howard Monk, The Word, Ian Mack, Mike Zimmerlick, Lilia Isa, Nathan Kane, and Matthew Wong for, uh, for this podcast, Beautiful Music. And thanks again to Sam Heaton from Rough Trade. Thanks, Sam. Yeah.